Welcome to the Queen of the Sciences podcast, conversations between a theologian and her dad. I'm your host, Sarah Henlicky wilson And I am Paul R. Henlicky. Today on the show, we will be talking about evangelical hagiography, or as I like to call it for a catchier phrase, saints for sinners. This is um, perhaps not the most obvious sort of topic for a couple of Lutheran theologians to get into, but I hope in the course of this episode to reveal why, in fact, Lutherans and other Protestants should be just as interested in saints as the rest of Christendom. Well, that's a challenge. Don't you know that we threw out the cult of the saints with the Reformation and left all that superstition behind us? Thank you, David Hume. That is correct. (laughs) <laughs> Explain yourself, please. Okay. Well, there, the whole the whole episode is going to be an explanation in a sense, but um, I suppose I can front load this by simply saying that this is a um, topic of perduring interest to me. It isn't just something that I came up with because we needed a new podcast episode topic, but um, I first started thinking and writing about it seriously a dozen years ago already. I wrote um, an essay for Lutheran Forum back when I was the editor called Saints for Sinners, and in it I introduced the new department of evangelical hagiography, which is what I then um, cultivated over my almost dozen years. Wait a minute, that those numbers don't add up. Well, anyway, I've been doing this for a long time. Anyone who's interested <laughs> can go back and find out. I'll put it in the show, show notes. <laughs> but anyway, um, I suppose in some senses, it just began with, um, uh, on the one side, hearing a, um, a professor at my seminary lamenting the fact that Protestants hadn't produced anyone really remarkable like Mother Teresa, and somehow Bonhoeffer didn't count. And um, like wondering if that was that was really true. Like, did, did Catholics and Orthodox really have a... Have a um, uh, stranglehold on the market of saintliness and were Protestants merely mediocre and boring foot soldiers when it came to it? And, you know, should I care? Should that bother me? It obviously bothered this professor. But then uh, on the other end, um, when, let's see, it must have been around the year 2000 or 2001, Dad, um, I went along with you to a course, a, a midterm course you were teaching in Wittenberg, Germany. It was my first time there. And uh, needless to say, in the course of my uh, Sightseeing around the town, I went to the castle church and walked up the aisle, and there at the foot of the pulpit was the mortal remains of our beloved reformer, Martin Luther. And I can assure you, listeners, that I did not pray to Luther in that moment, but there was something um, very moving and important to me about being where he has shuffled off his mortal coil. But there he was, and obviously remembered and venerated and honored, uh, however you want to call it. There is clearly some some need, even among the Protestants, to reserve his burial place and be able to pay homage to it. And I suppose at that point I started thinking, hmm, there's more going on here than that um, that uh, cheap line that we just tossed out all that superstition with the Reformation. <laughs> well, I suppose that that sounds plausible to me. Uh, uh, I think, after all, the cult of the saints uh, grew and flourished in the first 1,500 years of Christianity um, until it seemed to have been canceled by the Lutheran and Calvinist reformations. Is that the case? It is and it isn't. So this probably, we, we need to take some time in order to get to evangelical hagiography to talk about the, the practice of the cult of the saints, as you said, up until the Reformation, because there really is a difference. Um, so I just read this phenomenal book uh, by a scholar named Bartlett called Why Can the Dead Do Such Great Things? He's actually quoting um, a sermon of Augustine's there when he says that. And it is... Um, <clears throat> A book that first gives a kind of brief, um, forward-moving historical survey of the cult of the saints, how it developed and changed over the centuries, and then kind of takes a topical approach. Um, So, like I said, it's it's so many primary resources, just a a wonderful piece of scholarship. And um, so the first thing to say is that, indeed, the cult of the saints really does arise out of the martyrs um, under the Roman Empire who were violently and publicly and shamefully killed deliberately to try to quash the new religious movement. And the response of the faithful was not to be defeated, but to, whenever possible, collect up the body of the murdered saints 
and preserve it in some way and tell the story of of how they endured the suffering and continued to bear witness to Christ. And then, you know, over time, the stories would be repeated, be righted down. Polycarp is generally considered the very first of of that particular martyr story. Perpetua and Felicitas, who we did a couple years ago on the the show, um, they also are early and important martyrs. Um, And then anniversaries develop to remember them. And uh, but it's very it's it's very much focused on remembering the fortitude of the martyrs when they face death. So I, I think so far as that goes, not only is that uncontroversial, but I think even most Protestants would agree that those people are, are worth remembering. But what then happens is that that stupid Roman Empire decided to believe in Jesus, too, and took away all opportunities for martyrdom. And what fun is that? So um, there, there uh, came to be a, a, a necessary new way of displaying remarkable saintliness. And so this was a, a very, as, as Bartlett shows, a very deliberate and thought through move about how to transpose the image of saintliness in a situation when you were really basically no longer at risk of being killed for your faith. And so that's where we move into confessor territory and ascetic and monastic founders. So these are people who instead of having, you know, one really bad day when they're killed by the Romans, they devote their entire lives to suffering, to removing themselves from all sources of pleasure and indulgence and compromise. So of course, Anthony in the desert and, um, you know, all the various monastic founders and those who stand firm and argue against, um, you know, the pagans that still existed or, or whatever enemies there were. And then this just kind of, uh, you know, accelerates over time and the categories of, of people who can be added to it um, increases. Um, virgins, that, that those are really more virgin martyrs, really, that's, that's still during the, the Roman Empire. But um, although there have always been more canonized men than women, um, there always have been women also. In time, you are allowed to have kings and queens as well. Again, not very many, but it does happen. The occasional pope um, and even the occasional warrior. Um, and then later on, you very occasionally have children and most unfortunately, uh, usually child saints uh, were reputed to have been killed by horrible Jews. So I think that is the, the category of saint I would be most eager to leave behind in the dustbin of history. Forever. Yeah, naturally. Well, Sarah, that, that reconstruction sounds uh, quite right to me. I remember when we did the podcast on Perpetua and Felicitas that uh, how the um, account of their martyrdom uh, portrayed her portrayed her as clothed in supernatural fortitude uh, uh, and her gaze defeating the gaze of the voyeuristic onlookers and so forth. So this idea of a special sanctification, uh, stealing the martyrs to face their persecutors without flinching, was certainly part of that primitive Christian experience. And uh, a a big book for me in this connection is Peter Brown's book, um, in which he describes Mm. the the origins of of the monastic movement uh, and the ideal of uh, saintliness in this, in the theological conviction that the life of the resurrection was already available now. Uh, so that you could face death with steely fortitude and not flinch and stare down the persecutors. Uh, And even the ascetical disciplines have their origin here in preparing the body for the possibility of martyrdom. So deliberately fasting to deprive yourself of food, abstaining from sexual relationships in order uh, uh, to a- avoid leaving behind orphans, as Perpetua evidently did, and so forth. This idea that you could already now, here and now, live the life of the resurrection in defiance of the structures of malice and, and injustice, injustice, which still prevail upon the earth. And the evolution of that then into monasticism when Christianity became the state religion and um, became the popular option uh, and uh, pe- people remembering the this more heroic tradition 
wanting to pursue this holiness, this sanctity, this life of the resurrection by monastic uh, living. Yeah, I think that um, although you do see something like saint cults in certain other religions, the extraordinary degree and number of Christian saints, to me, what I I really got out of Bartlett's book is that... um, the reason why there is such a well-developed cult of the saints and specifically of the dead um, who continue to have have power and prominence in some way is, is a result of the Christian faith itself, which is premised on in a particular time and place, God became incarnate and his body suffered and died and then was raised again. So there's, first of all, this very specific historical and physical anchoring of the Christian faith. But secondly, then, that guy ascended into heaven, and we haven't seen him since. <laughs> and so what does that mean? How do we know that his his power and his lordship continues to extend forward as first one century passes, and then two, and then 500, and then, you know, then we have a thousand years since we've last seen Jesus. Is he still powerful? Is he still reigning in bodies and in time? And so my the, the thesis that I formed in my own mind is reading it is, aha, this was really, really important because it was a way of asserting God's on actually even more specifically Jesus Christ's ongoing lordship and I don't think that any Protestant in principle wants to argue with that at least the particular expression may raise an occasional eyebrow but that specific need for God's work in bodies and in time is is the same now as then well I can imagine though a certain kind of contemporary Protestant uh, who might go by the motto of the word alone categorically disregarding what you're talking about, the need for the experience to uh, the experience of Jesus uh, by his spirit in the gifts uh, of fortitude and self-denial and saintly living. Uh, They would think that this desire, they would even regard it as a kind of lust for experience, was an inauthentic need for proof or proof of faith, which can only be based on the bare word alone, the bare word of promise, which has no other warrants. This kind of theology, of course, was dramatically expressed in Rudolf Bultmann's in, uh, a commentary on the Gospel of John. The only proof is the revealer's claim that he is the revealer, and that's it. No other proofs are given. And so you're seeing, you seem to be saying that there is, based upon belief in the incarnation of the Son of God uh, in the, as proclaimed in the Christian gospel, there is a need to see this kind of sanctification of the body uh, in the continuing experience of Christianity as not the founding uh, of faith, but the strengthening and confirming of, of this particular faith. Am I right? Yes, that, that's a lot of stuff to respond to, and they're all great points. So the first thing I would say is there's a reason why we have a second article and a third article. <laughs> so this is definitely falling into the third article category, not the second article category. So to me, it would be a kind of setting up a false competition to say that, well, the you know, you, you either believe in Christ or you believe in um, plausible reasons for the power of Christ because you've seen how he's transformed other people's lives. I, I mean, there. So, all right, so that that much. Secondly, even the most um, aggrieved and offended um, Christian at the cult of the saints who says, you know, we should believe in, you know, just the word, just the promise, no evidence, whatever. Um, I assure you, if that person is functioning in a Christian community and sees absolutely zero evidence that there is any difference between someone who believes and commits their life to Christ and someone who doesn't, they too are going to have some serious questions about whether this is a real thing. (laughs) I I think the problem is much more a question of degree and the um, very specific personal circumstances of anyone's sanctification, which I'd like to get back to, rather than the possibility of of any transformation of life at all. And as I believe we just talked about in our episodes on faith and justification by faith, even the... um, 
Even the, the confessional documents are forced to admit in places that faith entails regeneration. So again, setting some sort of standard of what is good enough regeneration definitely causes problems. But um, I'd be hard pressed to find um, even the most um, bare bones anti-superstition Christian who would be really happy with people who looked indistinguishable from the rest of the world in every respect. Yeah, you know, I agree, Sarah. I think that if you look carefully at the New Testament witness, the faith in Jesus is always warranted. It's not faith in faith, which is practically what faith in the word alone, I'm exaggerating, of course, a little bit, uh, can be, because it's a self, self-authenticating self word that admits of no um, ancillary, ancillary um, evidences. Um, but if you look at the New Testament witness, uh, it's the experience of Jesus in the forgiveness of sins and the wonders of healing. It's the experience of the proclamation portrayal of his res- uh, crucifixion by the apostles of his resurrection. It's the experience of the gift of the Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit in creating the new community in which we bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. All of those are warranting experiences that uh, perhaps do not have foundational, but certainly have ancillary and confirming kinds of roles to play in, in the formation of faith. I think this is a topic we're going to have to come back to because I realize more and more how much proof is a very difficult and distorting concept because it, it's, you know, a classic fallacy of equivocation, all the different things that proof can mean. And um, obviously we live in a science era where proof is really important, and yet proof is not nearly as often proved as we like to think it is. Uh, this is part of the uh, the crisis right. in the sciences we've alluded to before. But um, I actually think, okay, this is dead. This is probably my most outrageous and indefensible hypothesis about the whole um, impact of the saints on Christianity in the world. But from reading through this intense um, history and an incredibly detailed history of what it meant actually for Christian people to venerate the saints and over time canonize them, um, you know, the, the official papal process comes quite a bit later, but there, there's always a vetting process, a warranting process, as you, as you call it, and something akin to looking for proof that this is, this is really for real in the case of the saint. So it, here, okay, so here's my hypothesis. People so often now talk about like 300 years ago, out of nowhere, the Enlightenment suddenly produced science. And then sometimes Christians will come in and say, well, the reason that it happened in a Christian world is because we believe in a benevolent creator who gave us an orderly universe. So far as that goes, I'm sure it's not wrong, but you know, other cultures and religions have had benevolent creators and orderly universes too. So why Christian civilization per se? And after reading this book, I had the distinct impression that the mind of Christendom had been trained on thinking very carefully through issues like cause and effect, um, warranted beliefs, uh, examining evidence, like seeing if it's really accurate to say that this saint produced this miracle and this person at this time, um, how to deal with the difference of, of where there are more saints and where there are fewer and why some arise and why some don't and why they're more like this category and more like that category. It seems to me, if you look at the just extraordinary energy that went into the cult of the saints, I mean, I had no idea really how how profound and all pervasive this really was in the actual like expression and practice of of Christian piety. Then it seems to me there there is every reason to believe it was precisely this analytical mindset that you know obviously came to a a kind of um uh, let's say it got overripe and started to spoil at some point, but it also cultivated these habits of mind that I think actually flow very naturally into the Enlightenment search for proof. And it's every bit as problematic to talk about proof where saints are involved as it is where um, all kinds of, uh, as I said, underproven scientific, especially social scientific um, experiments are proven. Anyway, so that is a, a huge topic and obviously in some respects an unprovable hypothesis. Ha ha. But uh, I, I think it's, 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 it's worth uh, some historian out there contemplating if the, we can trace some lines of connection there. 
Well, I think that would be the last laugh on the cultured uh, despisers among the scientists of the faith, <laughs> like Dawkins and, and Hitchens and so forth, if you taught them, Sarah, that in fact their own scientific mind descends from the cult of the saints. I have to admit, I would appreciate that irony as well. Okay, well, uh, we could spend a lot of time on the on the pre-modern um, cultivation of the saints, but obviously what I really want to get to is, is evangelical hagiography. So let me now go back and, and address this um, standard line that Luther and the Reformation just tossed out the, the saints, the veneration of the saints, the cult of the saints, it was all just gone. So first of all, that is sort of true. And um, it is true in the sense that Again, the extraordinary energy and devotion surrounding the cult of the saints, collecting bones, competing shrines, pilgrimages, relics, all that. Yes, that was very deliberately excised from Lutheran practice, even more thoroughly from Reformed practice, um, not so much from um, Anglicanism. Um, uh, I'll get back to that in a minute. So there is a, a very, uh, very specifically the sense of the energy, the, I mean, and I, I really, and the economy invested in saint shrines specifically and pilgrimages to them and relics of them, that definitely was tossed aside. Also was tossed aside praying to saints. Uh, you know, there's some evidence that, you know, it, it took a while to, to get out of the habit. But by and large, there seems to have been significant buy-in among the Reformation peoples to leave it behind. Um, weird, interesting historical fact, um, the German and Dutch territories had relatively relatively far fewer canonized saints than, say, England or France or Italy. However, uh, Portugal and Spain also had very few canonized saints, so it doesn't seem to be geographic or who would ultimately favor Catholicism. So um, it might have been easier for Germans to let go of saints because they didn't have many local ones anyway. On the other hand, most the, there was definitely a winner-takes-all economy <laughs> among the saints, so um, you know everybody had access to the, the super early martyrs and Mary and the disciples and so forth, so uh, that may or may not have, have played any big role. However, um, it is not true to say that um, the category was simply dismissed, um, again, other than the most um, disciplined of the Reformed. Most Protestants of the Reformation era kept some kind of concept of saint as the exceptionally devoted Christian. They continued to refer to apostles and certain early church, um, especially martyrs, as saints. And, um, and then if you even look at more radical movements like the Anabaptists, I would say they actually went in a far more um, saint veneration category. Again, they would not have prayed to these saints, but but Anabaptist um, faith formation was based on a book called Martyr's Mirror, and it's this massive collection of martyrdom stories from the early church uh, up to and including Anabaptists who were killed at the hands of, of Catholic and magisterial Protestants. Um, and it was meant to be that is how you were formed into Christianity. You looked at people who gave their life for Christ, and you you learned to do the same. Oh, so, um, yeah, so, I mean, there, if, and I've, I've spent a, a lot of my last dozen years of working on this kind of tracing out the ongoing um, uh, appeal to uh, saints, not in the sense of praying to them, but holding them up as, as um, models and remarkable and important figures. Well, now, uh, Sarah, don't, don't, don't we have to define our terms here? Because I think the fundamental Reformation critique of the cult of the saints was that identifying uh, uh, extraordinary Christians as saints is not the New Testament usage, which addresses the entire body of believers as the saints, uh, and that there was something inferiorizing about this elevation of extraordinary Christians, uh, particularly associated with the criterion of do working miracles, uh, that this uh, uh, was creating a, um, a, a two-tiered uh, uh, Christianity. Uh, it's parallel to the critique of monasticism in which the councils of perfection apply to those who take monastic vows, but don't apply to the ordinary Christians in the pew. And likewise, you would have 
saints elevated as those through whom the Lord worked miracles as opposed to the rest of us who just muddle through life? Well, you know, it's complicated. Yes and no. So they're definitely, Luther will definitely say, look, the word saint in the New Testament is basically equivalent to the word Christian. It's it's all the baptized believers. So yes, that critique stands. On the other hand, Luther and Melanchthon and all the rest continue to talk about the extraordinary. So I think the, the, the two distinctions that need to be made here are, first of all, there's a big difference between a dead saint and a living um, pretend saint. <laughs> and so I think much more of the, of the at least Lutheran Reformation's ire was directed towards the two-tiered system when it applied to living monastics who supposed that by forsaking family life, they were automatically in this higher category. I think they had a lot less problem with people who were already dead, who were farther in the past. You could look at the whole course of their life and how they turned out. And then again, evidence, you're in a better position to assess, in fact, um, the degree of their holiness. Secondly, it's really the invocation of the saints, not the veneration of the saints. That is the problem for, again, the Lutheran Reformation and, and later the, the Anglican Reformation. So yes. they actually, again, you will see evidence everywhere of appealing to the example, the extraordinary faith, um, you know, even sometimes the miracles of, of the dead saints as um holding up for us what our life should be like, and we should honor them, and we should thank God for them, but we should not pray to them for favors. And so there the problem is is much more the issue of people not trusting in God through his son by the Spirit, but trusting in saints more. And so for Luther, I mean, that was the, the critical problem that had to be addressed, and that that saint as crutch because you, you fear and distrust God, that had to be completely eliminated, but not the category actually of the extraordinary. I think rejecting the extraordinary is much more a product of a, um, a, a modernity that um, needs mediocrity in order not to be stressed out by a competitive culture. You know, and the Lutheran-Catholic dialogue comes to a similar conclusion, doesn't it? I remember the last of the seven North American bilateral dialogues was on Mary and the Saints. And there, I think, the distinction between veneration and worship uh, or invocation, well, invocation is a little different, but the, but the distinction between the veneration of the saints, which is just simply the honoring of the saints, the recognition of the grace of God effective in these particular lives is one thing. Uh, it's uh, And it's not to be confused with worship uh, of the saints. Uh, so the, the Catholic side strongly affirm that in the Lutheran-Catholic dialogue, right? The invocation yeah. of the saints, however, the Catholics said, look it, we believe in the mystic sweet communion with those whose rest is one. If I can quote a Protestant hymn, <laughs> <laughs> the mystic sweet communion with those whose rest is one. And so they interpreted praying to the saints as nothing other than an act of faith in the gift of eternal life, such that it is because of faith in the resurrection, it is possible still to speak to those who have gone before us uh, and seek their counsel and aid, uh, as one would any kind of Christian friend alive on the earth. I'm not sure what I think of that. It's not something that I find myself doing regularly. What do you think? Yeah, I mean... No, <laughs> I, 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 they're Catholic and Orthodox Christian friends of mine that I love and admire. And as a result, I will, I will admit that I've tried a couple times to address, um, I don't know, maybe probably only Mary in prayer. And I, yeah, I, I just couldn't do it. It didn't, it didn't do anything for me. It felt wrong. Um, you know, I, I, I'm not willing to call those who do it, um, unchristian or, or outside the, the, the realm of salvation. But, you know, I, I just basically find Luther's arguments, um, convincing, which he says there, we are not exhorted to pray for the dead. We have no evidence that they respond to us. Um, there are very strong strictures against, um, you know, using mediums, you know, like, uh, Saul calling up Samuel or something. That's an Old Testament example. And, you know, frankly, um, the saints do not talk to us, the dead saints do not talk back to us the way our living Christian friends do. So um, I, again, I, I suppose it's um, 
besides the fact that it seems to me unwarranted, the difficulty people have in even praying to God doesn't seem to me something that is um, helpfully um, watered down or interfered with by talking to saints. And I'm just unconvinced by arguments say, well, by but by praying to saints, it makes it easier to pray to God. I'm like, ah, I don't think so. So um, yeah, I, I come down really Protestant on this one. I, I, I can't see my way to the invocation of the saints or addressing the saints in prayer. That does seem to me the that that even with a strong faith in the resurrection and the life to come, there is a very big and unsurpassable wall between life and death. Jesus is the only one who has crossed it the right way. So, 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 all right, I buy that. But so, so what, what, what would be the difference between a contemporary Christian making a pilgrimage to Atlanta to visit the grave of Martin Luther King and a medieval Christian going to the shrine of a martyr? Probably the biggest difference is that the medieval person would have done it in the hopes that when they got to the shrine, the saint would heal them of some malady. And Mm. I don't believe people go to see King's grave in order for him to heal them. I think the the easiest way to put it is that over time, the early church and then medieval cult of the saints led to people trying to imitate Christ, but ask favors of the saints when it should have been the other way around. (laughs) You should ask favors of Christ because he is God, and you should imitate the saints because they are only human, unlike Christ, who is also divine. And I think that was basically the, the... the twist and turn that happened over the course of time that distorted the right relationship of living Christians, both to their Lord and to the beloved dead in Christ. You're right. For Luther, Christ, of course, is example, but only because he's first of all gift. And you can only uh, truly follow him as a recipient of the gift, which he himself is in his life, death and resurrection. The saints are not gifts to us in the same way, uh, other than as vessels of this gift of Christ, exemplary Christian lives through whom Christ has demonstrated his lordship. Uh, So it's really the gift of Christ that's at work in the lives of the saints that is uh, uh, an extension of Christ's own gift coming through to us, and therefore in the same way that the lives of the saints can be inspiring and exemplary for us. Right. And I I would just like to say, um, I I can't go too much into how both Catholic and Orthodox practice have changed since the Middle Ages. Their relationship now to the saints is radically different from what it was um, pre-Reformation times. So, for instance, John Paul II canonized as many saints in his tenure alone as in the entire thousand years (laughs) preceding him. And that was a very deliberate move on his part because he wanted to give people bodies in their own local time and places. There were far more saints Uh, outside of the conventional European and Middle Eastern homelands who were canonized under under his watch. Um, So there's a a huge explosion in the sheer number of canonized Catholic saints. On the other hand, um, there is no denying that even the Catholic relationship to saints now, uh, even the most pious and traditional, is nothing like it was in the Middle Ages with that uh, just intense orientation towards saints, towards shrines, towards seeking miracles. People still do it, but it is not, you know, the the center substance and expression of their practice to the degree that it was in the Middle Ages. Yes, I certainly think you're right about that on a mass scale. But I recall a visit we made to Padua, to the cathedral in Padua, where the tongue of St. Anthony is a relic uh, encased and was on display at the time we visited, I think I'm, my memory's correct there, St. Anthony's yeah, yeah, that's tongue, right. tongue, tongue in Padua. And I was gobsmacked at the devotion of the pilgrims to this shrine. And they were in states of religious ecstasy, uh, in prayer, arms extended, hands folded, intensely uh, uh, reaching out to touch the, uh, the case and holding this blackened piece of human flesh that was supposedly the tongue of St. Anthony. <laughs> you know, uh, again, I gobsmacked because this is so alien to my own Protestant piety <laughs> I, I, or whatever. I mean, it's just... You can still find it. It's still there. But as as the the 
common practice of the faith to the whole of of the church. It, it simply doesn't compare anymore. And, you know, also for Orthodoxy, they continue to canonize saints. They, they write new icons. But um, there again, we have a, a winner-takes-all economy. Most Orthodox churches you go into will have uh, everybody ever named Gregory and Mary Theotokos and John the Baptist and, of course, Christ. And, you know, you'll have have local ones as well, too. But again, as as the uh, the central central practice um, that has simply changed, we're still trying to get our way towards evangelical hagiography. So let's do that now. Let's move there. Yes. Okay. Okay. So first of all, why did I? Why do I use this term? So the first word is evangelical, and that's very deliberate. Um, it is the classic play on words that works much better in European languages than in English. But evangelical both means generically Protestants, including Lutherans, as they first called themselves, and still sometimes do. Uh, but of, but more primarily, it means of the gospel. And so my interest is in hagiography that is of the gospel, promoting of the gospel, speaking of the gospel, commending the gospel, leading people to the gospel. So the, the orientation there should be very clear that the goal is not um, saints because they're, they're better, saints because they can heal you or produce miracles, but saints because they direct you towards the gospel of Christ. Um, so that's the first thing. Yeah, well, I think it's just de facto true that we have an evangelical hagiography. I'm referring to a book that I think you have read also uh, by uh, uh, Stephen Haynes, The Bunheffer Phenomenon, subtitle, Portraits of a Protestant Saint. Do you remember that book? Oh, yes. That was one of my earliest discoveries in this process. Yeah, it's a delightful book um, because it shows the variety of ways in which the Bonhoeffer icon has uh, multiplied and extended and the uses of it within Protestant piety. I think that's really, really a testimony to a prima facie testimony to your hypothesis. And in the same connection, I would mention a kind of Protestant iconography in the uh, definitely lowbrow form of a graphic novel, The Faithful Spy, <laughs> A True Story, Dietrich Bonhoeffer and the Plot to Kill Hitler by John Hendricks. Um, this is not a bad, uh, not a bad little book, uh, which I actually uh, stooped to use with my 18-year-olds when I was a college professor <laughs> as a way of getting them into the uh, the interesting story of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. But it, it is, you know, a Protestant form of iconography. That has always been there, and it began with Cronach painting images of Luther at various stages of his life and has continued onward. I think Bonhoeffer, in, in many ways, has replaced Luther as the primary icon for Lutherans because he's, you know, he's a martyr, he's against the Nazis, um, you know, he stood up for the Jews, you know, he's a little, he, he kind of like hits all the points where Luther fails, <laughs> but he's still, right. you know, we know that Bonhoeffer is deeply and profoundly Lutheran. So he, so he's still okay. Uh, one of the things Haynes documents in that in that book about Bonhoeffer is how much Bonhoeffer's image has been remade to serve to serve evangelical Protestant purposes, right. <laughs> and yeah. certain aspects of his uh, his uh, commitments have been sort of forgotten or deleted, and other parts maybe a little bit um, exaggerated. But that is that is a classic treatment of his saint. I mean that that in itself kind of proves the case. Um, and you know, and the fact is, Bonhoeffer is again kind of the, in the superstar economy of saints. He rises to the top. But this has always taken place among Protestant communities. So, like in among Anglicans, you had Fox's Book of Martyrs which started with the early church, but included people in the Church of England. And I already mentioned the Anabaptist Martyr's Mirror. Um, there was a, a Ludwig Rabus who wrote the first book of Lutheran hagiography. Um, it wasn't particularly well written and as a result didn't sell very well, uh, but it was out there. There even I found reference to a early like maybe 17th century reformed hagiography of you know Book of Saints um, that was also not a very good seller. But I mean the fact that that could, um, impulse could even arrive 
arise within the um, um, Reformed tradition is remarkable. Um, you really see it strongly among contemporary evangelicals and Pentecostals. In fact, they don't even usually wait for people to die before they begin their canonizing process. I mean, who didn't regard <laughs> Billy Graham as a living saint? Uh, you know, certainly now that he's dead. <laughs> but um, Or, you know, I've seen... Um, Biographies of missionaries, that's very popular reading, especially for young people in evangelical churches. And, you know, they, they follow the classic lines, except for the fact that, you know, the, the people are usually married. Uh, but they follow the classic lines of this person, extraordinary person who devoted their whole life to Christ and put themselves in the way of danger to become a missionary, you know, wherever far flung place it is, you know, as well as denominational founders, those have kind of replaced uh, uh, monastic founders for Protestants and and so forth. So, um, and what I think is is uh, funny, but also unfortunate, is that the category definition is now heroes of the faith instead of saints, because of course saints sounds too Catholic. But you know, hero is is not a good word. It is a pagan word. It's not a Christian word. We should just be bold as Protestants and say these are also saints, and we venerate them, though we don't pray to them, but we do venerate them for their extraordinary witness to the gospel, which we really want to hear and learn from and be molded by. Well, I agree with that. I think that's I think that's de facto true, and it can only uh, be improved by becoming theologically articulate, and I take that to be your project here, correct? That is my task. So yes, as I said, you know, a dozen years ago or more, um, much under the influence of my my dear and saintly mother, who uh, has been attentive to the saints long before you or I ever were. I, you know, I, I really got interested in this this question of of how how can we take this practice that clearly exists and is going to exist in Christianity anyway, and you know, give it the attention it deserves and give it the accountability that it needs, because obviously all forms of saint veneration can run astray. So I, you know, I've continued to write about this. And um, one year when I was in Strasbourg, we did a summer seminar on the question of the saints and an ecumenical perspective. Um, I've been working forever on my own <laughs> little devotional book of who I, the Lutheran saints. Let, let me just admit, I am the self-appointed international canonizing body of global Lutheranism. I just took, <laughs> took it upon myself. But I will say that I do not uh, canonize people that I personally think are saints, but I look to see where Lutherans in history have recognized a remarkable person among them enough to tell their story, repeat it over time, honor the person locally. And, and that is how my selection process works. And actually, you know, Lutherans, if you go to your hymnals, you will find a calendar in there and it will have all the church holidays and then it will have saint commemoration. So we're, we're doing that ex explicitly. And of course, there's huge overlap um, there. I've, I've also unearthed some interesting characters who are less well known, at least to uh, North Americans. And I am finally now this fall trying to settle down on like a, a serious theological book on, on making the case for evangelical hagiography. Um, but the reason I, you know, besides the just obvious fact that hagiography happens, so you, you have to deal with it, is uh, as I've, I've done the work, I mean, the the precedents are already laid out in Luther and in the confessional documents. Um, so, for example, it's right there in the Augsburg Confession. Yes, the invocation of the saints is set aside, but a proper veneration of the saints is retained. And then in the apology, Melanchthon lays out the three reasons why evangelical Lutheran believers should continue to venerate the saints. Reason number one is that it is proof of God's mercy because he sends holy people and teachers and models among us to show his love for us. So Melanchthon's first observation is saints are living proof of God's love for us. So, you know, that seems wonderful and good to me. Secondly, he says that saints are evidence of God's forgiveness because, and now this is a very distinctly, I think, Lutheran and Protestant thing to say, all saints are also sinners. And I'll get to this in a second, but Luther talks about this all the time. The definition of a saint for a Lutheran is not a perfect or sinless person. It is someone who 
is an exemplar of giving their life to Christ and giving Christ to others, but not someone who managed to do it perfectly and flawlessly. And so Melanchthon points out that Peter, for example, is repeatedly shown in his sins and failures throughout the New Testament. And yet he is our Saint Peter. He is the number one disciple. He is, you know, the, the leader of the earliest church. So that should be comfort and consolation to all of us who are much less impressive than Peter, that if even someone as important as him could be forgiven sins as grave as his, then we too will be forgiven. And then Melanchthon says, third and final, and it's very important that this is the final one, after you have thanked God and become confident in his forgiveness, then you can imitate the saint, but Melanchthon says, according to your own vocation. So it was never meant to be um, an, an artificial or legalistic imitation in order to win salvation or become holy or good. It was to see where you are in your life, your own station, circumstances, calling, talents, family, whatever, and in your vocation, then to see how the saints can lead you and give you examples and models to follow. And I I think that's fantastic. <laughs> I don't think that can hardly be improved upon, uh, though, I mean, I'll, I'll write a whole book to try to improve upon it. But um, yeah, I think that that is a great charter for evangelical hagiography. Very good, Sarah. That... Um made me think of a couple of things while you were talking. Um, The uh, redefinition of a saint as a forgiven sinner through whom the grace, to whom the grace of God was not given in vain, uh, uh, but in fact became effective in that person and through that person for others in the world. And that this is a demonstration Uh, to us of the Lordship of Christ and the uh, presence and power of the Holy Spirit. I think those are really solid ways of of, of coming after uh, this uh, topic. Um, That would be my first uh, kind of response to what you said. Um, I also think that um, uh, the uh, writing of hagiography has to be undertaken critically, as you indicated, um, because the saints are not perfect people. And the tendency of hagiography, it almost has become a byword for a cover-up, a pious cover-up of the dirty truth, right? And, and so the book, by Haynes, the book by Haynes on the Bonhoeffer phenomenon does a good job of doing hagiography critically, um, exposing both the the weaknesses and hesitations and doubts of Dietrich Bonhoeffer himself on the one side and the egregious misuses of the Bonhoeffer legacy by certain contemporary Christians on the others. So it's a twofold, twofold critical theological work. Yeah, let me let me just comment um, quickly, uh, specifically on the question of hagiography versus biography. Again, the modern discipline of critical biography emerges directly from the Christian practice of hagiography. Christians are the ones who got in the habit of trying to write down people's life stories, starting with their childhood, tracing out how it is that they became the holy person that they were. And you can see naturally how that would turn into a biography of any person for any reason trying to, to tell the whole account of their story. So there is a definite line of connection there. And secondly, actually, um, the pioneers of critical hagiography were, in fact, Catholics, a group called the Bollandists, led by a Frenchman named Hippolyte de la Haye. And he actually realized that the pious accretions to saint stories was damaging their credibility. Again, which seems to me like the kind of uh, critical thinking that people assume is, is enlightenment only. Um, but the, the uh, de la Haye and the Bollandists working in the 19th century did critical surveys of hagiographical literature and tried to figure out, okay, where has this saint been conflated with that one because they had the same na- name? And where was this miracle misassigned? And what sa- this sounds completely implausible that, you know, he was beheaded and then he picked up his head and walked to the top of the hill with it. We're pretty sure that didn't really happen, you know. But their their purpose was is that actually by being critical readers of saint stories, they actually did more honor to the true saints by taking taking away causes for stumbling and offense because the, the claims were just preposterous or, or poorly justified. Ah, that's really interesting, Sarah. 
in this connection, I want to ask a, a question that, backwards a little bit. How did it come about that the miracle became such a qualifying criterion uh, uh, for the authentication of a saint? Uh, I just find this, this in some ways quite curious. I, I can see how it would be taken as a supernatural proof of authenticity, but then it runs into all the biblical problems of uh, the false prophets who can do such miracles to deceive, if it were possible, even the elect. Yeah. Actually, Dad, this is exactly why I love this topic, because every problem and challenge and difficulty and confusion in the entire question of God and humanity and sin and salvation is like telescoped into the problem of the saints. Like wow. it's all there. It's it's like the mega package of theological problems. So it seems to me uh, from, from this history is that actually miracles were spontaneously um, experienced and testified to starting with the martyrs and that um, therefore it just kind of set the ball rolling for what would continue on through time. But medieval people knew long before the Reformation and the Enlightenment uh, this exact problem that there could be false miracles. Um, or false attribution, and that, you know, non-Christians could claim that they were producing miracles too. And so there was a tension already, um, you know, in, in the the kind of people who, you know, wrote things down and reflected on them, not necessarily in popular practice, that a miracle was not enough to declare someone a saint. There also had to be firm grounds for believing that they led an exceptionally holy life. And, uh, you know, uh, sinless as much as possible would have been the preferred standard for the Middle Ages. And and, and so that's why you see why actually you have um, a bureaucratic canonization process develop precisely to distinguish between just magical or superstitious claims versus ones that can really be backed up by the saint's own sanctity. But but even after that, and, and even now, um, if I understand correctly, one of the reasons why even now the canonization process in the Catholic Church requires miracles, it actually works in the opposite direction now. It's proof that the person is in heaven and not only in purgatory, because a saint goes right to heaven and does not tarry <laughs> in purgatory. Um, and it, it's interesting to me how it's gotten really tied up with this whole question of proof. And like you have have doctors who work at Our Lady of Lourdes trying to make sure that the claimed miracles are really miraculous and cannot be accounted for by science. Um, you know, to me, that this points out all the, the problems with proof, as I said earlier. So I, I don't want to go into that particularly. Um, and, and let me just say, you know, it was like, more than a hundred years after Cardinal Newman's death before the first miracle was attributed to him. So I think that he spent a hundred years in purgatory for his Anglicanism. And the reason why the miracle just <laughs> happened is because now he's in heaven and can do it. <laughs> and I, I understand in some cases they even permit posthumous miracles. Isn't that true? Oh, no, that that actually is more important than miracles during the lifetime, because that's the proof that the saint is now in heaven and therefore has the, the merit and the power to give a miracle on earth, which they couldn't do if they were in purgatory. I definitely think this whole complex of issues needs a thoroughly evangelical baptism in the sense <laughs> that you mentioned earlier. Yes. Yeah. It'll be curious if we start getting miracles attributed to the dead Bonhoeffer, then we're no, we'll know we're in real hot water. <laughs> Well, I, I think your idea here is that the gospel needs to be demonstrated to be doing uh, its promised work. Saints, are you, you're saying show in real life how the spirit of Jesus Christ is still at work as a living and sanctifying power. Uh, this This is a broad connection, isn't it, also with the Pentecostal movement? Um, it could be. Uh, let's let's save that for our, our next episode when we get more into into those explicit connections there. Um, again, Pentecostals have their their holy people that they honor and they want to see transformed lives. But the when you talk about saints, you really are talking more about dead people than about living people. And uh -huh. um, you know, I I, I think that's a, an important distinction to make. So people from the whole of church history who are made present and accessible to us by the example of their lives. And but that actually gives me reason to say another reason why I'm very attracted to the this evangelical hagiography. Hey 
is because especially nowadays we are so trapped in our now. Everything is now and everything is relevance. And the fact that, you know, if we are indeed um, a historical church that is looking towards a total reunion in the kingdom to come, then all the saints and Christians who went before us are also part of the, the living reality that we're going on here. And so bringing forward stories of past Christians is an interruption of our obsession with where we are right now and a corrective balance. Um, I also think in a similar regard that attention to the saints specifically is a great check against institutional church history. I mean, all, I, I learned this early on, all church histories are written in a valedictory spirit. <laughs> they're always triumphalistic and they're always institutional. So we just talk about the church did this over time as if the church was not actually comprised of all the individual members of the church working together. And so I think the saints offer the best alternative to an institutional and ultimately bureaucratic telling of church history and actually focus it on this is the body that was baptized and saved by Christ's body. Uh, both at particular points in time. Well, it seems to me you've got a number of critical uh, dimensions to this project. It, 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 it's poking out swords and spears in a lot of different directions. I find <laughs> that in interesting. <laughs> Yeah, well, let me let me defend the outrage of my my project with um, none other than Luther himself, because you know, for a Lutheran like me, it all has to be justified by Luther. But actually, as I have read him carefully over the years, it is all over him. Like he he did not get rid of the veneration of the saints; he reformed the veneration of the saints, and that is what we should expect. Because Luther's impulse was always not chuck it out, but do it better, and that is exactly what you see throughout his entire corpus from the beginning to end. He continues to refer to specific people of church history as saints and not only biblical figures, also later figures. He particularly liked the early virgin martyrs. Uh, he would call Bernard a saint, even though he had some serious problems with various aspects of Bernard's career and obviously Augustine and, and all the rest. Um, he, as I said, he preserved the concept of saints as an exceptionally gifted from Christ and gifting to other Christians kind of person. He did not have this democratizing impulse that said every Christian is identical to every other. And above all, in his Genesis commentary, and, and maybe someday we can do an episode on this, I think, uh, I actually wrote an article recently making the case that Luther finally found his evangelical doctrine of sanctification but through his hagiographical reading of Genesis, which is to say Luther talks through all of the patriarchs and matriarchs of Genesis, and he finds in them better Christians than the church has ever produced. And he writes about them that way as <laughs> exemplars of faith. He is very open about their sins, but Luther is not frightened by the sin of the saints that is to be taken for granted. And that also is a theme that perdures throughout his entire career. But I think what Luther actually finds is how do you talk about sanctification? And I, I think you and I have more than once on this show expressed our frustration about how sanctification is like artificially cordoned off from justification or that like justification is what God does, but sanctification is what you do, you know, and then it yeah. still becomes a form of, of works righteousness. I think Luther finally, it comes together for him when he's working through the Genesis stories to say, ah, this is what sanctification looks like because it happens in real time as human bodies cope with their emotions, their relationships, their failures, their sins, their need to eat and sleep and breed and make a living and escape from enemies, that actually is where sanctification happens. So in a sense, I think the mature Luther would say, you cannot talk about sanctification unless you are talking about the experience of real bodily and emotional life, and that the best way to figure out how to do it is to look at how other people have lived before you. Yeah, fascinating, Sarah. My friend, Mickey Maddox, the Roman Catholic Luther scholar has spent a lot of time studying Luther's Genesis commentary with similar kinds of insights as you've just listed. Yes, I definitely read and valued his book very much in uh, in uh, the in my own work. All right, so it sounds to me like you've built a case in this episode for evangelical hagiography. What can we look forward to? Well, um, you can. Uh, 
go to my website right now and you can find my handful so far of of hagiographies of lutheran saints it's a series i'll, I'll include it in the show notes if you want to look it up um i have lots more names um one thing i discovered um would be hagiographies beware it takes a lot of time to write even a short and critical hagiography because the sources are enormous and um and then to to digest the story and retell it and retell it with an evangelical purpose is a time-consuming thing. So I like, yeah, forever I've been working on this. So, you know, don't look for a a book version of that before 2030, (laughs) the soonest, but you can see what I've got so far. On my website, I am like I said this fall. I'm I'm beginning to work more seriously on a, a scholarly book, making the case for evangelical hagiography and working through all of these um these many issues here. So I have a couple chapters done, but again, that that'll be a, a few years yet. But you know, all of you out there, you have heard of remarkable Christian people who have been important to you in some way, and it's pretty easy to find out stories of others. So I would say, you know, don't be shy at at looking to the uh the greats of the past and instead of being like intimidated or shamed by them because an an ideal can have that effect but say this is first of all someone to whom god was generous and so you can thank god for them and see that they also are imperfect and yet we're forgiven and so will you be those are steps one and two from length yes i think that's exactly the right approach certainly it's a, a solidly lutheran approach to the issue I, it causes me to reflect on my own motivations in publishing the book I wrote on Samuel Stefan Stefan Osuski, uh, who for me was an exemplary uh, Christian, an exemplary Christian intellectual uh, who lived in difficult, difficult times, caught uh, between the skilla of Nazism and the charybdis of Soviet communism. Uh, and uh, ended his life as a confessor of the faith. Uh, uh, you know, I think a lot of the things you're talking about uh, motivated me in writing that book. Uh, and I, I never thought about it this way until this podcast. I want to ask one last question. The ALPB produced a breviary called For All the Saints, uh, which includes an extraordinary range of uh, selections uh, from uh, exemplary Christians through the ages. Uh, uh, I, I know you're aware of that. What, what what do you think of that in relationship to your project? Yeah, that is a, a wonderful collection. So if you are not aware of it, definitely look it up for all the saints from the, the American Lutheran Publicity Bureau. Um, you know, it, it's interesting that you point out specifically that it contains excerpts from remarkable Christian figures through history. And this is finally why it's hagiography for me, rather than say hagiology. Like that that word is also used to like the study of holiness. But for me, I, I think, uh, and maybe this is also a very Lutheran and Protestant thing, it is the writing of holiness that particularly interests me. Um, And partly that is because Christianity is is formed around a Bible. Like we have scriptures, we have the scriptures of Israel, and then we have our New Testament canon as well. And so we are, our our primary formative um, reality is a written word, which is the the conduit of, of the living word and used by the Holy Spirit to bring us to faith. And the fact is that the reason why saints are remembered by and large is because somebody wrote down their life story. And then after that, it's because they themselves wrote things down and their testimony to the gospel has continued to have power in the written word over time. And so I think most of us nowadays, especially because we live in a hyper-literate culture, are going to encounter our saints like you did with Osuski because they left a written record or someone left a written record about them. But um, I would say there's almost, in the hagiographies I've done, there's only one or two so far where there is no written trace from the person themselves, that it's only a, a you know a secondhand report about them. And again, that has something to do with modernity and literacy and so forth. But I, I, I think there is this orientation towards the written word and it's and its unmatched ability to transmit. You know, even even if you break up a saint into lots of little pieces and send them to lots of different relic shrines throughout uh, the world, which definitely was also a thing that happened, there's still like 
a literal physical limit, whereas there is no limit to the reproducibility of of written and you know increasingly now spoken. But you know the, the even spoken word technologies depend on the tech, whereas you know things that are written down or printed on paper have a physical perdurance and yet a reproducibility that is unlike anything else. So um, yeah, I think there's a reason those things all intersect in that place. Very interesting thoughts there, Sarah, and it makes me uh, comment that your project of hagiography uh, is uh, scriptural with a small s, scriptural with a small s. It's not the scriptures, but it is a, a child of the scriptures. It's scriptural. Uh, yes, you know, and, and and just to make the elementary observation, observation, what is the most honored scriptural text we read in worship? It's the Gospels. And what are those? Those are hagiographies. They are holy tellings yeah. of the most holy person ever. So there is even a, a genre priority about this kind of storytelling and it being written down and then reproduced and transmitted and shared. I think that if you take seriously the notion in fide ipsa Christus adest, in faith itself, Christ is present, which is, a, which is really a kind of a interpretation of Galatians 2.20. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Uh, if you take that kind of angle on what happens in the lives of the saints, uh, that it is really an extension, an expression of Christ's own life, uh, that we participate in the life of Christ by faith, that the living, risen Christ continues to live his own life in the lives of his saints, uh, then you've really got a solid, uh, a solid uh, theological uh, uh, foundation for this project. I couldn't have said it better myself. Well, maybe with that, we'll wrap this up <laughs> and point to the next episode. All right. So uh, somewhat continuing the theme in our next episode, we will be talking about revival and renewal. Thanks for listening to the Queen of the Sciences podcast. For show notes and more, visit our website, queenofthesciences.com. To find out more about what we do, visit sarahhenlickywilson.com and paulhenlicky.com. Finally, please leave us a review on iTunes and tell a friend about the show.